Considering that FlatChat has its roots in problems with developers, I think you could say maybe I jumped the fence this week. I'm talking to Chris Johnson, who is the CEO of the Urban Task Force, the lobby group for developers in New South Wales and the whole of Australia. He's got some pretty interesting stuff to say, looking to the future and how apartment living is changing and is about to change. I'm Jimmy Thompson. This is the Flat Chat Wrap. Hi, I'm with Chris Johnson of Urban Task Force. Chris, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Jimmy. How are you going? I'm well. Now, first of all, what is Urban Task Force and what is your role in it? Uh, well, firstly, I'm the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of the Urban Task Force. The, the Urban Task Force represents the uh, property industry, the development industry. It uh, represents the risk takers, in essence, <clears throat> the people that... Uh, follow up where government says here's where we want new homes built, new offices, new industrial buildings, etc. Uh, and go into the planning system to try and get an approval and then ultimately uh, build and develop uh, these sort of uh, uh, essential parts of our urban fabric. Um, the, the urban tussle has been going for about 20 years. Um, it sits in a slightly different <coughs> role to some of the other uh, property type groups, we're a bit smaller, we've got a cap on membership of 100, and we've got all the key players, you lend lease, Mervac, Stockman, uh, <clears throat> etc., plus a group of other mid-level sort of people. Um, we also have an associate membership which picks up architects, planners and a whole lot of associated people. Uh, we see our role as really um, uh, one, trying to position the future of cities, particularly Sydney, but uh, we are national and have an impact on other, other areas. Um, uh, particularly picking up what I think is emerging very much in Sydney as a swing towards apartment living as opposed to house living, which used to be the norm. Um, uh, and we do a fair bit of advocacy to try to uh, support and encourage that. But we also do a lot of fairly rigorous drilling down to where new legislation might come, where there are problems in the planning system, where there are delays in it. We watch all the data that comes out from the Australian Bureau of Statistics or the um, Housing Monitor Department of Planning puts out about how many homes are being built or not being built or how many being approved, etc. So we can uh, have a fairly good uh, feel about the, the economic uh, flow through that's actually happening uh, in the uh, built environment area. And uh, would you call yourself a spokesman for the industry? Is that your main role? Yeah, yeah. my main role is to act as a spokesman, to act as a researcher, to uh, keep an eye on things, but, but basically to be an advocate for sensible growth um, because there are quite a few people advocating a different position. Right. Uh, so, so my job is to probably slightly overplay, uh, to swing the pendulum a bit more, uh, to a pro-growth uh, within the parameters that the government set uh, position, but also a, um, uh, a pro and supportive approach to newer ways of living, uh, which seems to be the only way a city like Sydney uh, can grow from our current 5 million up to, say, 8 million over the next right. 30, 40 years. Right, yes. Um, one of the main stories that we've all been reading about to probably most people are sick of reading about them, is uh, the, the issue certainly in Sydney with defective buildings. 
and I don't want to dwell on that too long, but what is the industry's response to issues like the Opal Tower, the Mascot Tower, and then there was the other building where people weren't even allowed to move in because the council said, uh, you know, that it was unfit for habitation. I mean, without getting into the specifics of each building, what's the industry's response generally? Well, look, it's a bad thing. It's a terrible, yeah. terrible thing if, um, you know, the actual delivery of the product uh, has problems uh, downstream. And, and some of them, I think, uh, it's fair to say, have been a fair bit downstream. Uh, like the mascot towers was 10 years after it was finished. Yeah. So I, I think we desperately need to learn from what's happened, what are the problems. Just take mascot towers, for instance. Um, some people are saying part of the problem is private certifiers are you know, out there to just approve no matter what because they're paid by the developer, etc. But mascot towers was actually the certifier was actually the council. Right. Uh, the local council. Uh, yeah, because some people say better if the councils do the certifying, yeah. they're more independent, but in this case it was them. Yeah. Uh, mascot Towers is also an issue where the water table is very high yeah. down in that area. It's only about two metres below the surface. Right. Uh, and, and what happens, I think, as different buildings are built, it starts to incrementally uh, build up a, uh, a movement of that water table yeah. uh, as more basements, which the council requires to push basements down into the water table, and that can lead to a destabilisation. Right. Uh, and I think there's something to do with that in in Mascot. Opal seems to be a strange one to me because, uh, you know, the architects, Bates Smart are one of the top architects around yeah. town. The yeah. engineers, WSP, are one of the world's biggest engineering companies. Because yeah. uh, the government's saying at the moment, I oh, will fix this by having to register these people. Well, WSP could get registered with their eyes closed. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, they'll, they'll easily get uh, registered. Um, the builder uh, icon uh, is connected to a very major Japanese um, yep. construction company, one of the biggest in the world. They've got IP and knowledge about construction that's uh, all over the, you know, very detailed. So I, I don't think some of the current proposals to register these people, therefore, will fix it. Mm. All those people would have got registered. Yeah. Um, I think in Opal there was a slightly different issue, and it, it's one that I don't think the government's really confronted yet. Uh, and that is the design-construct approach. Yeah. And uh, that is where the developer, to get an approval, gets documentation done up to a certain phase, then goes to tender to find a builder to finish off the document and to engage the consultants to finish the design. Uh, what happened on Opal was the same architects were continued through. That's Bates Smart but the engineers were changed. So about a third of the way down the documentation process, I think uh, there's a change of engineers and, I, and there's a shift of responsibility from the developer to the builder. My feeling is the builder probably said, look, if we change engineers, we can probably save a bit of money <laughs> somewhere. And so a new type of structure emerged, which is part in situ concrete, part precast panels, yep. uh, and it seems the problem came about where the precast panel connected to the in-situ. Yep. Yep. So uh, I think we need to look at this, uh, this transfer of responsibility. How much does the new engineer just change or not change or assume responsibility for all the work the first one did, uh, etc. So I know the um, 
Institute of Architects have been saying it's better to have the same team carry through, yeah. which makes a fair bit of sense because then they're totally accountable for what they deliver along the way. So there are some quite complex issues in all of this. We're supportive of what the um, Shergold Weir report listed of uh, ways to improve the uh, circumstances uh, and what the New South Wales government has put out on their proposals, uh, picking up on Shergold Weir. But, but I'm not sure how much it'll change the culture. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, the, the thing about the changing of engineers doesn't surprise me at all because I know of many stories where the architect, they design the building, it's an award-winning building, and somebody says, well, we don't want to do what you've designed here, we want to do something because it's more efficient or less expensive, usually less expensive. And that often ends up with the architect being shown the door um, because they won't compromise on their design and the, the developer has a slightly different set of priorities, which is to get the building built for, well, maximum profit. <coughs> Look, there is a, an issue, certainly, in uh, uh, the pressure of cost over design quality. Uh, and I can understand both sides of that argument. Uh, you know, you depend on where you're building. You don't want a Rolls-Royce job everywhere across Sydney. There's an affordability issue. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and we need to be uh, aware of that. My feeling is most apartments are pretty good quality. There's a pretty sound approach to them. I think... Uh, People need to not take too many risks. Uh, I think, for instance, Opal mixing these two different construction yep. techniques for structure creates a higher chance of a bit of risk, and it's probably wise not to do that uh, if you can help it. I think at the end of the day, there's been a, a shockwave run through the industry. <clears throat> the, the, the biggest thing that's going to happen, of course, is consumers are going to say, well, look, how do I guarantee the quality of mm. what I've got? There's talk about all the players in the supply chain signing off that they guarantee their work. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah. doesn't necessarily guarantee that it will be uh, perfect, but uh, there will always be defects of some sort. And there is a process at the moment in New South Wales whereby uh, money is kept, uh, 2% or so, as a bond to uh, get that fixed up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a reasonable sort of approach. Some say that we have lost the old role of a clerk of works, a sort of you know, expert, mm. ye olde builder who yeah. just checked everything and washed it all and yeah. measured it all. Some say this certifies, because the word sounds like they're certifying everything, yeah. uh, but the reality is they can't, uh, and they're not employed to watch every single concrete pour, mm. every bit of steel uh, reinforcement. Uh, and how everything comes together. So I think there's a misnomer about their role. I, I think the shockwave is actually going to be more in the consumer uh, saying, well, if I'm going to buy your product, uh, how do I know it's not going to become an Opal or an Ascot mm. Towers? Is there a sense in the industry, basically you've got the good guys and the cowboys from looking at it from the outside. There seems to be developers who are, care about their reputation and are determined to do as good a job as they can Mm. Um, and then there are these fly-by-night uh, companies that turn up, throw up a building and then disappear. Mm. Is there a, a sense within the industry that the good guys would like to do something about the cowboys or do they just oh. not want to even discuss it? No, well, they're, they're being dragged down by the cowboys. Uh, <clears throat> and I think that uh, repeat business is a crucial part of what most of our members are on about. 
so your uh, VAC Stocklands Lend-Lease, uh, their reputation is uh, vital to them. If people are going to say, look, I want that brand because that brand is associated with quality, that's worth a lot of money. I use an analogy of this, uh, say, Virgin Airlines and uh, Richard Branson, that, that he doesn't want to just make as much money as he can on the first flight at all. Mm. You know, and so I've made a lot of money, Yahoo, I'm going to now forget it. He's yeah. got continual branding to keep going. Yeah. So, And the same with developers. Uh, you know, They have a continual process to keep their reputation, to uh, keep it flowing. And in fact, most of their orders to clients are repeat business. So um, a lot of people out there think, right, look, I'm comfortable with this firm. I'm used to their product. Yeah. Um, I'll uh, Next time I want to buy an apartment or house or whatever, um, that's the one I want to relate to. Because we, we forget, certainly in the flat chat universe, we forget that 50% of apartments are owned by investors. Yeah. And these are people who, uh, for instance, the Crown Group, uh, not the the casino people, no, no. The, the developers. Yeah. They have a Crown Members Club, and they will get uh, a newsletter saying, "Oh, we're we're developing a new thing here. If you want to exactly. register an interest." Exactly. So they're not just selling it to people like me who want to live in an apartment. Mm. They're, they're selling to people who are going to invest and obviously let the, the apartment out as a. But I think this is an important part of a shift that's happening in society and particularly in cities towards a rental as opposed to ownership. I know the Australian ethic is to uh, own your own home. It's uh, an investment for the long term, for the future. Uh, but I think a lot of younger people particularly are saying, well, look, that's going to tie me down. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to look after and maintain and be there all the time. I'm, uh, but, but a lot of younger people are seeing jobs in a, a global sense. You know, they, yeah. they could well be in New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, whatever, uh, in terms of work um, and being tied down by owning a property. Yeah. Although if they do it as an investment, they then at least have a foot in the yeah, you know, the, the supply chain. Well, that's a great fear, I think, among a lot of young people, it's to the point of despair, that they feel that they can't get into the property market and the property prices, well, not recently, but, you know, historically yeah. have been rising very quickly and they just see them disappearing over the horizon. So obviously <laughs> renting isn't just a, a choice. For some people, it's their, their sure. only option. Well, it is, but also I think uh, the rise of the apartment market also helps people get a different type of ownership. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important to understand. I think the average apartment is about four hundred, five hundred thousand cheaper than the average house. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a much more affordable product to purchase. But but the interesting thing about an apartment, it's it's partly ownership of your part of it, but also through body corporate fees, sharing gymnasiums uh, in Crown Group's case, uh, libraries, uh, yep. you know, common areas, lifts, uh, swimming pools. Swimming pool. so, so, so I think there's a very interesting um, model where you are both owning a certain amount, which will hopefully rise in capital value for most people over their lifetime, but also using as you need to other facilities. So some people will want to go into an apartment block that's got very high body corporate fees and yeah. lots of amenities. Other people will want to go into one that have not very much in that regard. And yeah. that's a choice people can make. So the sort of thing I'm trying to champion is I think this is quite a good move, that people share more rather than necessarily owning more. 
Uh, and I think it goes back to the GFC, the global financial crisis, where people were encouraged to borrow, 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 so they get the biggest house possible, a three-car garage, two boats, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, people thought, wow, you know, I can borrow money to do this. And, and eventually it all collapsed, of yeah. course. But, yeah. uh, people had too much. Uh, and, and there's some interesting books. There's one by a guy called um, Jeff Mulgan, used to be uh, Tony Blair's uh, policy advisor, oh, yeah. called The Locust and the Bee. And, and he identifies two psychologies, basically, for people, the, the locust being, I want the biggest, best, I want to, you know, rape and pillage, grab, you know, take yep. whatever, but very self-centered. And the bee being a much more cooperative, shared sort of way of doing things. Right. Um, and so my feeling is that the McMansion house in some ways <laughs> represents the, the locust sort of position yep. and the uh, more affordable apartment with some shared facilities next to a railway station, coffee shops and things, walkable communities around it represents the B sort of uh, position. We've got, we've got to take a little break, uh, just a very short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the different models uh, that... Uh, you've just described Good. after this. Great. <laughs> I'm back with Chris Johnson of Urban Task Force and we're talking about some of the different models that have evolved and in terms specifically of apartment living. And one of them, you were talking about sharing, and I mean sharing in the dictionary definition of sharing, not the Airbnb definition of sharing, which is sharing other people's common property. Sorry, I'm being a bit cynical. Some of these new models, like the co-living, which sound very much like, dare I say it, student halls of residence, where you've got your own room and maybe even your own bathroom, but you share a kitchen or, or stuff like that. Do you see that being a, a model for the future? I, I think it is a trend. I don't think it's going to be a massive trend, but uh, I think the new generation boarding houses is part of that, whereby um, boarding houses that uh, have a self-contained uh, small, 20 square metres, 26 or so, uh, bedsit type space, yep. and some shared facilities, uh, barbecue areas, kitchen areas, living spaces, etc. Yep. It's quite a good model for some people. You know, the student housing obviously works because students like to congregate and yeah. meet, meet and talk and things. And not everyone wants to do that uh, in every building type. The whole move to um, build to rent, which is long-term <coughs> rental, and certainly my understanding in the American circumstance is that that is like a resort almost. Mm. Mm. Uh, that as you go into the complex, you pass the concierge who says, look, here's your laundry that we dropped off this yep. morning and that uh, the swimming pool's been warmed up if you want to go for a swim <laughs> or, or whatever. And uh, a resort-type living where you know, you're looked after a fair bit uh, is quite a good model. Well, there's, I came across one. Uh, it's on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., Mm -hmm. And it had it, the swimming pool, it had a dog park, it, right. it had a running track mm -hmm. as well as a gym. It had its own bar, which was like a, you know, a proper club anywhere, but it was all rented. Mm -hmm. Nobody owned in that mm -hmm. building. There may have been several investors who collectively owned the thing, but basically this was for young professionals, mm -hmm. presumably related to the government in some way or another. And you look at it and this is giving you a life in the city, much further, much more than you could afford to, no, to look, ever I, buy. I think it's quite an interesting trend, and 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 I think uh, 
if one looks at the, the two models, that is the, the big house, uh, but detached, not connected to anything else, requiring a car all the time you want to go shopping or visit people, it does get a bit self-contained, a bit isolated perhaps in some ways, whereas the other model where everyone's mixed up a lot more mm. is a bit more communal. Yeah. Um, and, and I think for society's point of view, it's probably not a bad thing. Do you think strata communities are a pipe dream or, or do you think that it's a genuine opportunity for people who have grown up, as you said earlier, with this Australian dream of the house on the quarter acre block, you know, and the, the three cars out the front mm. and my home is my castle. Is it a real opportunity to change that aspiration? I, th I think it is, but I, I think it's not to say one's wrong and one's right. Mm. Um, I think what we've got to do is, is uh, present that that model, the house, the suburban house, is a model for a whole lot of people that want that lifestyle. Yep. But I think there are another group of people who would find that to have that lifestyle, they've got to be so far away from their workies mm. that the travel becomes excessive. So I think there's a new model that's starting to emerge, which is the shared apartment type living. I think in its early days, it probably didn't get as much social interaction uh, as it could. But some of the ones that are now happening are, are quite incredible. I mean, one of our members has built one out in uh, the Rosebury area, which is about a six, eight story, wraps around a garden, uh, but there's a childcare right next to the front door. Right. So families love to live in this because yep. they just drop their kids off as they go to work in the childcare next to the front door. And is that open and functional? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so yep. it works. No, it works. In fact, we did a publication on this uh, about people who love living in apartments. Ah. Um, and, and the person who loves this particular one, which is actually a Meriton apartment building in Rosebury called The Gallery. Uh, so Lauren and her little boy, yeah. Lucas, and her husband uh, live in there. Uh, they have the uh, little bee childcare All right. Uh, right next to the front door. So she drops uh, Lucas off at the childcare. Tuesdays, she doesn't go to work and she, or just in the morning, comes back and picks Lucas up. And with three or four other mums, she goes to a different apartment block in the area. Each right. of them have a playground. Each of them have a swimming pool. Wow. And they don't have to look after any of them at all. Yeah. Uh, and they're thinking, well, this is much better than when I was in the suburbs. Absolutely. You know, I've got the childcare, the, uh, the, the playground, don't have to maintain any of it. And so it's a really good lifestyle. How do my readers uh, get a hold of this publication? Presumably, is it available on your website? Well, it is, but we did a program around it called Welcome Home. And uh, I'll, I'll just check out the actual website for it. It's uh, www.welcomehome.org.au. Terrific. If you look at that, you'll be able to see Lauren. Uh, you'll be able to see a number of people right. living this more urban lifestyle and how they enjoy living in this more shared manner. This is the the dream, in a way, for those of us who are passionate about apartment living, and I think that's one thing we definitely share. But it goes against the the generally accepted opinion that apartment blocks are no place for families. But that's changing, isn't it? Oh, it is changing because the market is realising that this is becoming a, a new part of the market. So if you build a childcare in, bang, you attract a certain group of people. 
a lot of uh, families are concerned about the quality of schools their kids go to. Yeah. But if they want to go to the best schools and they don't have two, three million dollars for a house, mm. which is what you may need yeah, in these areas, yeah. but if you can get for 1.2 million an apartment with the childcare, etc., but closer to the schools you want to get to, that's a, a real plus. Yeah. So, so I think these are starting to drive decisions that people are making um, <clears throat> along the way. Um, and I think the market is responding to this of providing childcare, gardens, playgrounds, common facilities that can be used by everybody. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to a developer uh, about a year ago, small scale guy, and he said he was finding his business was in areas which were culturally, people wanted to stay together. The extended family wanted to stay in the mm. same area, but you know, as the family grows, then they're number of houses available <laughs> reduces yes so he was going in and building small unit blocks ah. marketed at people who were already living in the area and saying well no you can't afford to buy a house to be near your mum mm. which you want to be because you're yep. about to start having children <clears throat> so we'll build an apartment block at the end of the street kind of thing mm. no, I, I think that's a good model i i, I think uh, the other part of that model is the downsizing model Mm. <clears throat> that is, people in the North Shore or wherever, a big home, uh, getting older, uh, finding it difficult to uh, move around, maintain, look after their house. But if near the railway station at Linfield, Pimble, wherever it might happen to be, there's an apartment building yep. uh, where they can just walk out and get top, you know, to the coffee shop uh, yeah. and things. They can have their car parked underneath with a lift going directly to their apartment, which for older people is uh, quite important. So I think the downsizing is becoming quite a big thing. And in, in this uh, Welcome Home, we also did a, a coverage of uh, some downsizers. Yep. And one of them, for instance, Judith, who uh, lives in the Mossman area, she's someone who likes to travel quite a bit. And right. apparently quite a lot of the people in this apartment block like to travel. And so she uh, finds that it's easier to lock up her apartment uh, yeah. up on the third, yeah. fourth floor when she does go traveling. Uh, she says her neighbors, she has the key to their letterbox, connects to all their mail. Right. She has the key to their apartment. Uh, so the day before they come back, she goes and buys milk, puts it in the fridge, oh, wow. uh, gets everything stocked up so they can be there. So, so I think for the downsizers who like to travel a little bit more, this is also quite a good uh, mode of operation. So lock, lock up and leave. Lock up and leave, but yeah. also a, a communal way of uh, sharing. I was just thinking that. This is, this is it's the old-fashioned sense of community. You know, the mm. Buddha pint of milk. Well, yeah. I'm showing my cultural background <laughs> <Right>. there. <laughs> liter. Put a liter of milk in the fridge for them coming back. Yeah, know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah, switch yeah. the aircon on or whatever. Yeah. It, that's real community rather than a kind of manufactured community. I mean, another book that I find quite interesting is by uh, an Australian author, actually, called Rachel Botsman. I can't remember the exact title of the book, but she compares hyperconsumption, which is the more you own, the better, mm. with cooperative consumption, and that is sharing. Uh, yes. And she used in her book the example of the electric drill. She reckons the average time an electric drill is used per year is six minutes. <laughs> and she says, well, this seems crazy that all these people have to own one of these yeah. things. Yeah. 
<coughs> to use it for six minutes. Right. Um, and, and then she extrapolates to other sorts of issues, and uh, Go Get Cars is a good example, for instance, that uh, Central Park development on Broadway, I think it's got about 40, 50 go-get cars down the basement. Wow. So all the people owning apartments in Central Park don't really need to own their own car. Right. They've got a choice of 40. Right. Um, so if you want a pink Porsche, there's probably one down there <laughs> or yeah. whatever. <clears throat> so so that seems to me to be quite a sensible approach mm. Uh, mm. to how you do it. I mean, where I live in Walsh Bay, we do have a car, but we hardly ever use it. We mm. do have a little holiday place down in Kangaroo Valley. We get to two or three times a month, perhaps. Um, about the only time we use it. Uh, uh, so probably a go-get would work quite well for right. us. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But people are still wedded to, oh, I must own yes. a car. I yes. must own. Well, it's that thing of it's you know it's an extension of the new car smell. You know, it's it's, it's think this is mine. This is you know this is right. fresh, and you know you don't want to get into a car and get you know the the <laughs> the old footy jumper smell, which is a different thing altogether. <laughs> You're in your last few months in this role. Yep. What is your optimistic view of the future in apartments? Uh, I think it's very positive, uh, uh, and I've championed this a fair bit. Um, I think the suburban, low-rise, detached house model is fabulous for a city up to 3 million, maybe 4 million. I think when a city like Sydney gets to 5, going up to 6, 7, 8, uh, it's impossible to keep that low-rise happening forever, particularly if you're on the seaboard, you can't go east, we've got national parks around the place, mountains, etc. So I think there needs to therefore be a, a different model, and I think the cooperative living, as opposed to the house living, mm. which is generally apartments, uh, there's subsets as well to do with maybe um, townhouses, terrace houses, etc., um, is a very positive way to to balance the future. Uh, we've done some research from the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics or the uh, census of 2016 uh, about the big swing to people living in apartments, and, and it's uh, it's been quite strong actually. It's um, I'll, I'll just find I've got some numbers here that I'll be able to refer to. But in the 1991 census, 68% of Sydney's homes were detached. Right. But by the 2016 census, that had dropped to 55%. Wow. So it's a big shift, and apartments went from 21% in 91 to 30% in 2016. Wow. So there's a big swing on, and we think apartments in the next 40 years will end up at 50% probably right. of, of Sydney's homes. So basically a space issue, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that yeah. there isn't enough space to have a lot of low-density uh, living and uh, it, it's going to be uh, an important thing to do. But, but the other big shift from those census bits of data though are that in 1991, 41% of the people living in those were single people. Yep. Uh, so it was generally just for singles. Uh, by 2016, that was down to 34%. We project by 2024, it'll be down to 28%. Singles. Singles going down, but so the like, rest will be couples and families. Well, the the orange on our little charts is 14% uh, of uh, the people living in apartments in 1991 were families. 20% in 2016. That's a 6% jump. That's quite dramatic. Yep. 
and we think that's going to go up. So, so I think that families are starting to realise that this is a, an affordable but workable lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, a swing on to uh, to do that. And and in the we also ask people, you know, what influenced you to live in an apartment? Uh, and the key issues were access to public transport. Yeah. So this is crucial. Uh, affordability, if yeah. it's four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars cheaper, even rental. Uh, safety, security. A lot of particularly uh, Asian cultures feel safer above the street level. Right. Um, lifestyle, that cosmopolitan lifestyle, coffee shops and walking to work and things like that. And of course, local schools, childcare, uh, etc. So I, I think there's a, <coughs> a whole demographic group that are interested in this. I don't think we're going to stop it. I think there's been a bit of a hiccup with uh, projects like the um, Opal and the Nascot Towers, which has not helped the industry. Mm. We've got to get through that. We've got to do all we can to make sure those things don't happen again. Um, but but I think there's a, a continuing need to not just promote the detached house. Uh, I don't think the missing middle, which the government's been promoting, terrace houses, townhouses, is going to catch on in a big way. Mm. Uh, my reading of community and council concerns about this was that they were worried that this would spread across all the suburbs. That, right. that every suburb and street would suddenly get four terrace houses or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think the economics of it are hard to stack up. Yeah. To, to knock down a house worth a million dollars and put two terrace houses up, uh, you're up for 500,000 just for the land. Yeah. They'll probably cost 400,000 each, so you're up to 900, you're almost up to a million dollars. And most people looking at it would say, well, I'll take the big house yeah. <laughs> on the land instead yeah. of half the size with the newer terrace I house. I mean, low rise is an, op an option in there, the, you know, the, the, um, the three, the, and almost, yeah. you know, a modern equivalent of the, the two story walk up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, however, that there's a big ageing population, baby boomers moving yep. through, uh, and my feeling is they're going to need lifts, yep. and therefore, the model that's going to work is probably going to need to be at least apartments of four storeys or a bit more. To justify having a to lift. To justify having a lift. If yeah. it's only two storeys, it's hard to justify having yeah, a lift. Absolutely. So you get to four storeys, five storeys, uh, and this is very much the Barcelona and Paris model. Right. Those more horizontal buildings that uh, line the streets. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, and so I think there's a real future for that type of building. Okay, that's great. Now, we're going to take another little break. And when we come back, Chris is going to tell us about some of the projects he's done that have upset people. That's after this. back I'm with Chris Johnson of Urban Task Force um, who seems like a very decent person but apparently Chris you've done some projects that have upset people. Well I have. I have. When I was a New South Wales government architect uh, 95 to 2005 I was involved in a number of projects that uh, did get people upset. One of them was the Conservatory of Music, that uh, building down on Macquarie Street, not far from Government House, built by Francis Greenway, a previous government architect, uh, as stables. In the early 1900s, 1912, 13 or so, uh, the courtyard was filled in with a auditorium. Right. Uh, and so it became a conservatorium, but it got various accretions built to it. 
and we instigated the whole revamp of that building. And what we did is actually demolish the buildings around it and put underground a whole lot of uh, material because it was a sloping site and they had views out over okay. the botanic gardens. But we upset the National Trust who said, but this is a historic site, you can't start uh, bulldozing anything or changing anything, It's uh, nothing can be touched uh, and things. Uh, and they got quite excited about it and actually managed to get the CMFU uh, to put a green band oh, wow. on the side. Wow. <clears throat> so I had some quite tense meetings with Andrew Ferguson, who was the head of the CMFU at the time, who stopped the whole project. This is as it was being built. Yeah. And said, look, sorry guys, this is the uh, end of the whole project. Uh, which was a bit, uh, a bit scary. I said, this is ludicrous. Our, our logic is, is, is fine. There's nothing that we're destroying and things. Um, but, but the most amusing part of it <clears throat> was when National Trust had a rally uh, at the conservatorium um, and uh, I went up and stood with the National Trust just to act as a bit of a tension to them <laughs> as they started all their speeches uh, but then I could see this was a bit above the conservatorium music. The, the uh, head of the conservatorium, a woman called Sharman Pretty, started leading a group of students out from the building down below Mm -hmm. They had with them trumpets and drums and all sorts. <laughs> so just as uh, uh, Justice O'Keefe was beginning his speech, suddenly all this music started blaring out, wow. uh, and all the students had signs saying "We're Heritage too. We've been here for a hundred years. Uh, you know, we each need to be considered, uh, etc." And uh, uh, and, I, and I think that the, uh, they actually got more coverage, quite frankly, in the media. Yeah. Uh, than the National Trust sort of complaint. But I think they made the point yep. uh, that, that the heritage is not a fixed static issue. It, it's an evolving issue that moves on. Uh, and this project uh, was very much part of that. Uh, and at the end of the day, once it was finished, all those people who had actually complained and fought about it uh, ended up saying it's a great solution. Yeah. Well, there you are, folks. If you're thinking of organising a process, a protest on anything, first form a band. That's right. <laughs> yes, make some noise. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. That's been very informative and enlightening. Um, Good. Well, thanks, Jimmy. That was a, a really uh, stimulating discussion. Thank you. Cheers. Well, that's the Flat Chat Podcast for another week. If you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe. It's completely free and it will come straight to your phone or your pad or your computer without you even having to think about it. Tell your friends, leave us a review, anything. Let's get the word out there. We need all the support we can get. Now, if there's something that we haven't done in the podcast that you'd like to hear, let us know. Come to the website flat-chat.com.au and that's also where you can come for specific advice to ask questions or answer other people's questions. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>